This is a global original podcast. Hello, my name is Gordon Glenister. Welcome to Influence, the global podcast that shines a spotlight on the influencer marketing industry. I'm the co-founder of BCMA Influence, which is a professional membership association that represents the influencer marketing industry. And my objective is to interview some of the most interesting people in the world of influencer marketing. And in the next 30 minutes, get real insights, ideas and tips to help you better understand the fascinating world of influence. In today's show, I want to talk about the relevance and importance of diversity. It's a massive issue in the influencer community, and I'm hoping more brand campaigns do reflect a more diverse group of people moving forward. Some of the big social media campaigns, particularly Black Lives Matter, have had a profound effect on people's behaviour, and brands that ignore a more inclusive message do so at their peril. Equally, organisations that have embraced this are doing extremely well. So to talk more about this, I caught up with Eric DeHaan, who is the founder and CEO of Open Influence, a Los Angeles-based influencer agency and platform. So I started by asking Eric about what and who are Open Influence. We really started operating in early 2013. Uh, We're one of the first companies in the influencer space when we're starting. uh, I don't think the word influencer was really coined to refer to um, these these social media creators. The way we use the word today, back then we we're using words like promoter and social celebrity and Insta famous, and there are quite a few. Um, so we started very early on in the space. You know, in terms of our approach, we're demand side solutions. So we represent the advertiser, unlike a talent agency, which is supply side and represents the talent. And our job is to get as much value as possible for the advertisers. And uh, to do that, we've built a lot of proprietary technology and data to analyze and and help us select the right influencers to help us streamline the workflow. And in terms of kind of where we are today, we have offices throughout the U.S., an office in the U.K., an office in uh, continental Europe, and a, a small office through an affiliate in Hong Kong. And obviously, you're a proud member of the BCMA, which I'm delighted about as well, which is great. Um, we want to talk about diversity today. So um, obviously the whole Black Lives Matter has, uh, has gone huge around the world now and had quite a profound uh, impact. And I know this is something that you take very seriously as an organisation about um, diversity. What, what, what's your stance on the industry's take on diversity? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... Um... There are a few different aspects to it, right? I, I think one, you know, is, is on the staffing and hiring front, and I think the industry as a whole could do a much better job. But I think the part in what we do that that really has a broad effect is in the inclusion part, in terms of the kind of influencers and the ethnicity of the influencers that we work with, and the industry as a whole works with, you know, because influencers are effectively extremely visible. Uh, individuals, making sure that advertisers are including a diverse set of talent is very key to make sure there's a good level of representation out there. I think the industry as a whole could be doing a much better job 
Um, I think advertisers could be doing a much better job because ultimately they're the final decision maker um, when it comes to selecting which influencers are going to represent them. The U.S. specifically is a very diverse country. It's it's a country that you know I I think is is, is a melting pot and and should be seen as a me- melting pot from across the world. And yet, on the advertising side, we're we're not doing as good of a job showing that level of diversity in the ads we create, but also in the influencers that we as an industry are working with. I'm guessing what we don't want is just tick box diversity, do we? We want true talent represented accordingly. Yeah, and and I think in, in terms of that, like this can't be treated as a, you know, here's a quota, check off the box, right? Because that, then people go through the motions, and as soon as you know, the news cycle starts to change and diversity is no longer front and center, you're going to start getting adherence to that kind of fading. But what's really important is that companies build a culture where diversity is really key so that the individuals are adhering to that culture. They understand why it's key and they're proactively working to drive diversity and inclusion across the board. So whether it be from ethnicity standpoint, whether it be from a gender or sexual orientation standpoint, just making sure that we're getting a diverse set of creators that really represent the diversity that we're seeing um, in our country and in the world. And do, do you think sometimes it's ignorance on the advertiser's side so that they just haven't thought about it and therefore they want a campaign to work and therefore they're, they're looking for guidance? And I'm guessing in some instances, you, what you're saying to me from, from what I understand is you're, you're pushing back slightly to say, look, had you not thought about these types of people that I think could work very well? Yeah. So when the way it will work, um, at least with us, is we'll present influencers, a set of influencers. The brand will then go through and approve and vet those influencers. And then based on who they approve, we'll then go and, and, and finalize the contracts with the talent. Um, and so I think with brands, there, there are a couple of things at play. I think one of the big mistakes the ad industry makes is you'll have things like, uh, you know, like, like a, what they'll call like a general market. So we're going to be focusing this campaign on the general market. And then we'll have a, a, a separate campaign focused on, let's say, Hispanics, you know, Hispanic Americans. But if you think about it, it Hispanic Americans are, are just Americans that happen to be Hispanic. So why is your marketing effort that much different? It's not, this, this might have been true couple of generations ago, people who are first generation, they're speaking two languages. Maybe you want to adjust your marketing to to be in another language, but that's not really true today. And so, and, and I think that goes back to like more of that, the, the box checking exercise as opposed to really understanding the market. And I also think brands have historically just tend to view the world in demographic lenses, right? So like, who are you from a age standpoint, location, ethnicity, income, education. And that's not the way the world works today or or, or I think should work um, because today's world is much more about interest. We don't care who you are, how old you are, where you live, what your ethnicity is. The, the truth is if you're interested in this sort of topic, if you're interested in gaming or if you're interested in yoga or what have you like that's the kind of content that you're going to be driven towards so let's brands should communicate based on interest not on demographics so i think i think there's a bit of that driving the brand and i also think there's just subjectivity influencer marketing is a pretty new industry still and brands are still learning how to fully work with influencers and what the best process is 
And, and it's, it's a little bit of the wild west on that front. And so what happens sometimes is you'll have the sort of subjectivity of whoever is managing influencer marketing on the brand side, just making calls saying, oh, this person's a fit or this person's not. And that leaves a lot of room open for bias. I'm not saying it's, it's happening all the time. I'm not saying it's people of color not getting chosen on campaigns, you know, because everyone in influencer marketing on the brand side is biased. That's not the case, but people do bring their biases with them. And when they're not conscious of them, those sometimes have much bigger consequences, especially when we're talking about representation and advertising. You think it's a positive or a dangerous attribute to consider using different types of uh, diversity in the search tools on platforms? Yeah, I think one of the tricks or the challenges, I should say, is when you start labeling creators, you know, whether they're people of color, whether you're labeling them based on orientation, gender is a standard one. So that, that is something that we pull in. But even how people identify with genders have changed from the sort of traditional demographics points that, that, that are, are attributes that we look at. But it can be for sure. And I think that's where this risks turning into a box checking exercise once again. Like right now, there's been a great sort of response by the ad industry. Um, I think the ad industry is waking up as well. And the influencer industry is waking up where black creators are being are being sought out by brands more than ever. You know, the hope is that that trend doesn't go away again when this news cycle goes away, when people are not having racial justice at the front of the conversation like they are. So the question is like, how does that, you know, how does the industry make sure that that's continuing to happen? But how do we make sure it doesn't turn into a um, box checking exercise. You were talking about uh, the pay differences as well. And, and we know there's an Instagram account called the Influencer Pay Gap. Um, it's quite interesting to see the uh, what looks like very, very similar profiles. And yet there's quite disparity amongst what people are getting. So we, we did an internal audit on our side because the first thing we did is saying, you know, if there's a bias that's happening within our company, like we we want to know about it and fix it as soon as possible. And so, fortunately, we we didn't find any of that issue. And I think I think the bigger challenge with influencer pricing as a whole is it's just all over the map. Like there's not, um, you know, we, we we've developed some pretty sophisticated models and um, on the pricing side, and that's kind of been the continued uh, challenge for us, you know, kind of the boulder we keep pushing up the hill because there's so many different variables that affect pricing. Ethnicity uh, and, and race, it's not directly one. I, I think where race plays a role again is in the selection process where, where people of color or creators of color might not be as likely to get chosen. And in a bigger scheme, that might have some effect on supply and demand. But again, we're not seeing that. The big things that we're seeing that really affect price comes down to the content type, the platform type. So like a long form video on YouTube um, will obviously be a lot more expensive than an Instagram in-feed. Story is less expensive than an in-feed. Those posts may be bundled, which then has a discount for posts. The influencer size as well. So people think um, micro-influencers are really cost-effective and there's some truth to it, but not fully because when someone is a micro-influencer, 
you you have to pay them something and that's something when you look at it from like a CPM basis is actually quite high compared to a, a you know a mid-tail influencer and then when you look at the short tail or the macro influencers the big name influencers you know that pricing could be completely all over the map and it's very subjective because there's not a lot of substitution for that talent right if you want this person and they have 5 million followers and a certain look and feel and a brand and they're a brand onto themselves you can't easily and the brand really wants to work with them you can't easily substitute them so they can kind of demand whatever the price whatever price they want um so so those are really the main factors that 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 i would say drive pricing in the industry another one that creates upward pressure would be like uh, having a talent agent or manager if you have an agent manager negotiating on your behalf you're you, you know you're also more likely to as an influencer not necessarily just take the deal from the brand or feel the pressure from the brand because it's a big brand and that and that's something that i would say the mid-tail influencers the short tail so the the medium to big talent don't necessarily um, they, they, they have their managers and they don't necessarily feel that pressure because they have so many emails coming in from different brands that want to work with them. But definitely when you're looking like at the lower mid tail to more micro influencers, you know, they're more susceptible to pressure. And that's where having representation can really drive price. And so that was kind of what our, our study showed us as well is, you know, when there was flexibility that went above or broke the model, it was do more so to to agents and talent and that was regardless of the ethnicity of the talent do you think some of the more ethnic groups underpriced themselves undervalue themselves no i mean i don't think it's driven by by the creators at all i i, I think i think the issue is much more systemic than that right because ultimately like supply and demand drives pricing in any market and so you know if there if there are is and that just means that there's going to be less demand and that's going to drive down prices so likewise inversely what we're seeing now is because brands are making such an effort to drive inclusion and they're reaching out to people of color more than ever or should say um, creators that are people of color more than ever um, that's actually driving up rates for those influencers that's i i think the biggest thing and so i think if we can as an industry move in a direction where we're eliminating biases or just being conscious first right of the biases that we may have just going back to what i was saying about the platforms because i just wonder whether or not there are brands and agencies and influencer managers the first search tools that they're looking at i'm just wondering if there are statements that could be raised there that help them think about that almost like as a pop-up you know is your selection diverse have you considered diversity without seemingly lecturing them but just reminding them of it i'm not necessarily suggesting there are there are all the various search criteria i'm just saying a statement that is very visible at the time of selection being diverse is not just moral it's also just good business at the end of the day like you know you need to represent the population that you know you have and have people from again like different ethnicities religious backgrounds you know different different genders uh, you know and and you have to really be inclusive from from that standpoint um and so i think i think it's just at the end of the day good business if you as a company look like you have a bias in terms of how you're communicating you're going to be held accountable and and so i think i think there are things that can happen but i think the biggest thing just comes down to like really instilling it across the board and making it 
normal. Like that's that's is what the new normal should be, as opposed to like let's let's kind of promote it. Um, and and yeah, and, and, and so I think I think that that's key. And, and I do think um, you know on a flip side, like acknowledging the biases again are, are really important. Like in the U.S., um, you can't say that racism is is gone when it's not slavery is is less than 200 years old uh in in this country which is you know the whole concept of it's crazy and if you look at the south um you know there are confederate statues you know i'm i'm jewish and that that's similar to you know if if every time i had to go to a courthouse because i had a traffic ticket i saw a statue of hitler or uh you know or or of a famous nazi and that's what's happening in the South and the U.S. So, and, and there's a debate, too, around around whether we should take down these monuments or not. I don't even know why they're there in the first place. So, kind of, you know, it, it kind of just goes to show that there's really this sort of deeper, deep-rooted racism that that still exists. That I think that's where we need to be really conscious of that, acknowledge it, and then we can start solving the issues. And do you think the demand for change is coming from Gen Z millennials? Younger, younger people that are getting it and wanting change rather than a, an older population? Maybe. I, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I think that um, the baby boom generation definitely was active and, 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 and definitely drove change. Now, that generation was divided and they also lived through a lot more. And I think in as the generations are progressing, like the the concept of racism is kind of crazy, I think. And I think as with, with millennials and Gen Z, like I, I think this concept of, of not having diversity is just is just seeming crazier and crazier. But that's I think that's true. But I also, you know, that that's been my personal experience as well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. So tell us about some campaigns that you know have run yourself or others that you know that have really embraced a diverse campaign image. We've ran a lot. I mean, in every campaign that we're looking at, we actually make sure that our account management team is proposing uh, a diverse set of influencers and and even pushing back on clients that are kind of being biased in their selection. I, I, I think I think, uh, and I'm I'm not going to name a- any names, and and they're not necessarily going to be any of our clients, but a lot of the cosmetic brands and the beauty industry has had a pretty bad track record. Uh, and I'm not talking about any of our clients, I'm just talking about the industry in general. And so I, I, I think that's an industry that's starting to really embrace this more so than ever. We've been fortunate to have clients that have been very open to this and they've really responded well to our, our message across saying like, look, we're gonna push back if you're going to refuse to have a diverse set of talent. And again, it's not just from a, uh, ethnicity or race standpoint, it's also from, from other standpoints as well. Yeah, I mean, these individuals can be extremely inspiring to their communities. I mean, ultimately, again, it, it's just about influencer marketing is all about connecting with people to build trust as opposed to just an ad where, you know, you walk by, you see a billboard, you see a subway ad, it doesn't really connect with you. You're blind to that, right? But when you see a person that you trust and you follow talking about, a great new product or a great brand that really resonates well. And so, you know, it, it's really all about trust. It's uh, it's about authenticity as well. And people might say, well, you're paying influencers to talk about content or talk about, brand, you know, uh, brands. How's that authentic? 
well, if you think about it, like most television networks have sponsors to fund what they create. So now you have creators that are funding their content through these sponsorships, no different than it's ever been when you're talking about content, whether it be television, radio, magazines or newspapers or digital publishers. What's happening is, is brands working with creators is them supporting the content they created and the messages that they're sharing and the relationship that they're building with their audience. So I think it's very important for brands to do that, especially as you know the, the world is constantly changing, what brands mean to people is constantly evolving. And so it's really key for brands to make sure that they have that link with their audience and the new generation of audience members that are coming about. What happens to what I call influencers that try and jump on this bandwagon? One, that's terrible. That goes against the idea of building trust with your audience. Um, these are also, you know, the types of influencers that I would say when people think of the word influencer, they think of, you know, sort of this vain sort of model type person that doesn't, that's not really a professional model per se, not really adhering to any sort of content format or whatnot. They're kind of just like kind of vain lifestyle posts. That's what people think about when they think about influencers. But the truth is like influencers are just, they're just people that create content and it could be any type of content from DIY to childcare to, you know, scuba diving to yoga to any kind of topic to science, right? To any kind of topic that people find interesting, they're creators for that. And, and, and those are really the influencers and they're authentic. And so I, I, you know, anyone looking to just, you know, do it for the gram or do it for the likes. uh, I mean, they, they do deserve to get roasted because it's not correct. And I think the real test with all this is not going to be now, but it's going to be months from now when racial justice is no longer at the front of the news cycles and, and dominating the news cycles. But are these people still going to be, you know, helping drive change um, then? And so that that's going to be the real test. And And it's not a one-time jump on and jump off. It's like a real um, reflection and it's a real path to to change do you see the growth i mean in terms of trends what you see moving forward within the industry do you see more long-term ambassador type programs where creators are really delving deep within the brand yeah i, I don't know if more because typically you know when when influencer marketing was starting off the the sort of analog was the celebrity like ambassador model. And so I think early on brands started with the mentality of like long-term partnerships. And the thing with influencer marketing is it's fast moving, content's moving quickly. And so there's not necessarily a huge amount of value to working someone with 20,000 followers or 50,000 followers, let's say consistently as an ambassador for you know a year at a time perhaps so i think the engagements are definitely shorter right it might be several posts over the course of a month it might be several posts then a period of not and then several more posts eight months later or a year later or or whatnot so i i don't think these sort of ongoing ambassadorships necessarily are on the rise but i you know i 
I, I think the value just comes down again to authenticity. And so it, it just depends on the brand and how well is that brand a fit for that influencer and how well can it be integrated? If it's a brand that really gels well with the influencer's overall message, it can continue to have longevity and be like a much deeper sponsor and, and that influence can be an ambassador. If, if it's not the case, it, you know, don't try to force it in. So I, so I think the short answer is it just depends. It's not a one size fit all, but I, I don't see those ambassadorships as long-term ambassadorships on the rise. I think they've kind of, it's kind of been pretty even over the past several years. Do you find though that there is going to be a growth in nano influencers and even consumers as fans? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think like there was a big trend over the past few years where the term was micro influencer that everyone's jumping on. And then people said, okay, how do we take that further? So then nano influencers emerged. I think at a certain point, they're no longer influencers. They're just people uh, with, with average followings, right? And, and I think the thing that's going to have to change is the model for engaging with, you know, I, I'm just going to call it like the very long tail of talent is very different than how brands are currently engaging with influencers, right? So now when a brand engages with an influencer, you're putting a contract in place. There's there's certain content requirements. There's a collaboration process to a degree as well. And so there's a lot more of, I would say, of an overall process. And when you start working with a lot of micro-influencers to scale that up, brands cannot be going through and collaborating on every piece of content. It's it just not worth the time from an advertising standpoint. So what happens is, you know, brands might just say, okay, let's send out our product to a thousand of these micro influencers and see what happens. And it's a really mixed bag in what you get. Cause you know, most influencers won't post others will post the wrong thing uh, or, or be, you know, 80% there. Some will message it completely wrong where you're like, wow, I would have paid them not to post my product at all actually. Cause that was, that's doing more harm than good. And so brands, I think if they're treating the micro influencer approach like they're treating the sort of standard influencer approach it's not going to work the way you have to treat it is really much like a ugc play where it's here it is let me create some sort of incentive and whoever participates participates and i'm okay not having full control of the messaging because it's just not doable what i'm hearing from you is it's almost like there's a separation between almost like the consumer fans and the smaller groups, which is slightly more scattergun, whereas the, the areas that the top talent is a rise in the professional influencer, which is almost like a, you're employing a creative director. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's exactly right. Like, they know their audience. They're creating amazing content. They're now, I mean, on YouTube, like, you know, creators are creating, like, full-on series um, with production budgets too now, right? And so... And so it's it's quite amazing what's happening there. And I think the big barrier is not as much the influencer when when you're looking at more micro, but I think it's just the brand and the economics there. Like there's all, the brand wants to spend the time approving everything. And you know, even though we as a company could reach out to, you know, a thousand influencers at a time and scale it up, and we know like this is all we do, so we know. We, we could streamline that process. The truth is the brands want to be able to approve everything 
before it goes live and approve every influencer. And brands have multiple teams. They, if there's an agency involved, then the, the agency will then work with the brand team and they'll work with their internal legal. And so with all these touch points, it just doesn't scale well to have that process with a bunch of micro influencers because you're going to spend weeks getting content approved and the reach is not going to be nearly as high and the amount of time invested is going to be pretty high. So like, I mean, the term that my team makes fun of me saying is I often say like the juice isn't always worth the squeeze on that one, right? This podcast is supported by the Branded Content Marketing Association, promoting the value of influencer marketing globally. That's it for another edition of Influence. Please don't forget to subscribe and let us have your feedback to our email, feedback at influencepodcast.net. Or you can go onto the BCMA website, www.thebcma.info. You can also send me a message on my Instagram too, which is Gordon Glenister. And if you feel like it, it would be great if you could leave us a five-star review. That would be awesome because it really does help us. Thanks also to my producer, Neil Whiteside of Freedom One. So until next time, from me, Gordon Glenister, bye for now.